official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at wellchurchvt.com. How's everyone doing? I am well, thank you. Karen is so faithful in asking me how I am every Sunday. That is amazing. So as Abby mentioned, we are continuing our series in the book of Daniel. This is going to be our seventh week in the book, and we've been up to this point covering a chapter every week as best as we can, and so we're coming to Daniel chapter 7. Before we jump in, I just kind of wanted to refresh a couple of the main themes that we've been introduced to in the book of Daniel because they kind of help, will help frame our teaching this morning. So the book of Daniel, how many of you have found it more relevant than you expected it to be to your lives as when we started, right? Yeah, it is a super timely book, I think, to be reading and studying together as a church. Um, I found it personally encouraging and challenging, but we're introduced to these two themes, this idea of uh, how, to, how to maintain faithfulness in the midst of a difficult context. And I kind of think of it as like a parallel main theme to the book, or maybe there's a better way of articulating them as one theme. But there's this idea of how to maintain faithfulness in the midst of a difficult context. The context in the book of Daniel was uh, that they were facing Daniel and his friends. They were a a minority in exile in a foreign land. So that was their difficult context. I'm guessing that none of us find ourselves in that particular context, but we can think of our own difficult context as well, right? And there's this kind of parallel theme of how how to maintain hope, or hope as the as the bedrock or the fuel uh, that that helps us maintain faithfulness in the midst of a difficult context. So it's probably harder than ever. Would you agree? Maybe not harder than ever, but. How many of you have found yourself in a place recently in the past few years where whether you're looking at the news or you're looking at a particular situation in your life where uh, maintaining hope has been a struggle? Maybe you have it. Maybe you lost it. But it's, we've, we all, all kind of have this uh, understanding and know what it's like to struggle with uh, maintaining hope and to ask the questions of what does it mean? And we ask this question as a church community. What does it mean to be filled with hope or to live with hope as we follow Jesus, who we profess as king, or we we profess Jesus as king of the world or king of Vermont, but does the world actually look like Jesus is king? Does Vermont actually look like Jesus is king? Do our lives look like Jesus is king? Does, Does the news reflect a world in which that truth is fully realized, right? And so we understand walking this line and this difficult uh, thing that we're called to do as a people who are aspiring to follow Jesus and his teaching and his way and maintain hope in the midst of that. This morning, we are going to be looking at Daniel 7, which contains a strange dream and vision of Daniel's. It's really strange. Actually, I think it's great that we all had an extra hour of sleep last night because we're, we're jumping into the deep end this morning. So all of y'all are going to need that extra hour of rest. Um, 
But we're actually going to see how Daniel 7, uh, even though it's strange, these visions and there's these beasts and things, you're going to see, we're going to get into it, uh, that Daniel 7 is actually a key, a key to the book of Daniel in understanding these two main themes of maintaining faithfulness, maintaining hope, and the idea that the kingdom of God is what brings the hope in the midst of this difficult context. So uh, I'm just going to bring out some examples to help refresh our memories from the beginning of the book of how we've seen that at work already as we get to Daniel 7 to frame it a little bit. And these stories, these characters that we've been introduced in the book of, uh, book of Daniel, they're models of, I'd say, they're models of resistance to the empire, uh, resistance to the empire, resistance to Babylon, and a way of life that was in opposition to uh, the, the way of life that God taught in Scripture and in Torah. And it's, what's interesting about uh, this resistance to empire, this resistance to Babylon that we've seen through the book of Daniel is it's actually kind of a resistance that happens from the inside, if that makes any sense. They didn't, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we know them by their Babylonian names. Uh, they're the main characters of this book, as we've discovered. And they don't cloister themselves away and kind of create a monastery in Babylon and isolate themselves from the rest of society, from culture itself. But they actually have a resistance that kind of takes place and they maintain faithfulness from within the empire. They take government jobs. They receive Babylonian names, they wear the clothes, they have the fashion, they speak the language, uh, and yet they, we see them kind of walking this thin line of maintaining faithfulness to God and to Torah as well. So stories about resistance to empire, like in chapter one, where we see Daniel and his friends refusing to eat and break uh, Jewish food law that they read about in Torah. And, and, and we see that even in these situations that their lives were put in danger and they are delivered and rescued and elevated and given promotion in Babylon. And this kind of is a theme that we see re repeated. We see uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to worship the king of Babylon as a god and they're thrown into the fire to be executed, but they are rescued and promoted. And just last week in Daniel chapter 6, we see Daniel himself, his three friends aren't there in this narrative, and he's thrown into a pit of beasts, a pit of lions, to be killed. He's rescued from the pit by God. It's a miracle. And so we see these, these stories come up of uh, maintaining faithfulness and kind of walking this line, and also working government jobs, taking Babylonian names, wearing fashion. Daniel 7 uh, it's also kind of a parallel to Daniel chapter 2, where we see the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, has this dream. Plug for the podcast if you want some more strange dreams and visions. You can go back a few weeks, go to Daniel chapter 2. But why these chapters are also parallel, our chapter 2 was actually kind of a demarcation in the book, a transition point. And chapter 7 we're going to find out, is also another transition point. And so I mentioned in Daniel chapter 2 that there's actually, the book of Daniel is written in two languages. First is Hebrew. How many remember the second? Maybe, does anyone remember the second? Shout it out. 
a resident Bible scholar, Aramaic, Aramaic, yes. And so from Daniel chapter 1 to Daniel chapter 2, there's this transition from Hebrew to Aramaic. It's kind of a subtle hint of saying, like, pay attention to what's happening right now in this transition. Um, And so we see in Daniel chapter 2, Aramaic, and up until uh, chapter 7, the book is also written in uh, Aramaic, and after chapter 7, it goes back to Hebrew. It switches back. So we're kind of reaching another transition chapter, and the rest of the book kind of has a bunch of these other visions and dreams and that sort of thing. So we are going to dig in a little bit. How many of you are ready? How many of you are ready? Some more? Okay, yes. Some more of you are ready. I'm going to put out a request for volunteers. We're going to see how this goes. I need four volunteers And I'm going to tell you right up front, uh, you have to have a little bit of silliness in your bones. You have to be a little bit self-deprecating because it's going to involve sketching. You don't have to be an artist. Um, And there's not much redemptive quality to this exercise except for it's just going to kind of get our imaginations churning and hopefully be fun for the rest of us as well. Um, And so it's going to require you to be sketching while I'm reading Daniel chapter 7. Uh, four volunteers. Do we have any brave souls? Okay, we have one. You can, come, you can come on up. Okay, we have one brave volunteer. Two, three, four. Yes! Amazing. You can come here and get your crayons. This is your task. You're going, we're going to be introduced to four beasts in Daniel chapter 7. You can pick a station, doesn't matter. One of these stations. And I will have the particular beast uh, on a on the sheet of paper where that, and you, your job is to draw that beast. We're going to be reading about the beast and watching you draw, and your job is to draw the beast. So by now, we're all a little bit curious what the beasts are. So let's open up Daniel chapter 7. First year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, like a lion, and had the wings of an eagle, I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it, and behold, another beast, a second one, a second one resembling a bear, it raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. You guys have a few minutes to draw, so don't stress too hard about this, so... They got neon crayons as well, which is pretty cool. Might make it a little bit more difficult, but sorry. Three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads. It's like a a super mega leopard. Four heads. Deaf leopard. The drummer from... (laughs) It's a different reference to Def Leppard. The drummer from Def Leppard only has one arm. And that is true. 
Oh my gosh, where, where were we? The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night vision. It's like he was maybe partially awake. How many of you have been in a dream and you're like, I'm just going to stay here a little bit longer because I'm curious where this is going. This is where Daniel is. He just kept looking in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the other beasts that were before it. It had 10 horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Welcome to church, everyone. Yes, strange stuff. Whenever You can keep on drawing as long as you want. You're cool to be up here. Whenever you're done, though, you don't have to stand by it. You can go and sit down. A couple notes before we continue reading. First, uh, dreams to the original biblical audience wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been as strange of a thing to read about or hear about to the original biblical audience. We actually see dreams and visions being used kind of symbolically all throughout the Old Testament and in, even in the New Testament as well. The original bi- biblical audience, had the, had, they had a biblical imagination that was used to visuals and hearing about these things symbolically. And so you can kind of test me on this. There are actually dozens and dozens and dozens of examples of beasts being used as symbolic imagery for kingdoms throughout Scripture. So I'll just give you one so you can fact check me this morning. But Isaiah chapter 5, you're going to see uh, that Babylon is actually depicted as a roaring lion devouring and Uh, and taking away its prey. And so you can go to Isaiah chapter 5, and you see that imagery of a beast being used to describe the nation of Babylon. Uh, Horns were actually symbolic of uh, kind of like a power or authority, or even in specific reference to an individual king or a uh, so, in, or in reference to a king. And so, if you want to fact check, there's dozens of references, but you can go to Psalm chapter 75, which speaks of God seeing, uh, cutting off the horns of the arrogant and the proud and exalting the horns of the righteous. Now, think like animal horn, like rhinoceros, not like trumpet <laughs> horn. Not that any of you were doing that. We'll see what is drawn on that fourth, that fourth beast, right? <laughs> okay, let's continue in his vision. I kept looking until thrones were set up in the ancient of days. It's a poetic way of referring to God. Took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. It's kind of like a throne courtroom setting. The court sat and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an expression of, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period 
of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. How's everyone doing? I'm trying to decide if I should take a sip of water. I think we'll just continue on for a moment. <laughs> so we're also introduced to this image of a, someone who's like a son of man approaching the throne of God in Daniel's vision, right? And so if you grew up in Sunday school, like you're, everyone's like Jesus radar is going off. It's like, pew, 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 son of man. So the son of man What's, what's that about? So from time to time here at Church at the Well, <laughs> you like that, Jeff? <laughs> the Jesus radar, yes. So we got our radar going off. So every once in a while at Church at the Well, we go through like a Hebrew word or a Greek word. Does anyone remember the Hebrew word for man? Adam, yes. It's the Hebrew word Adam, which means man. But this part is written in Aramaic. Does anyone know the Aramaic word for man? It's a trick word. It's a dom. It's a dom. It's a trick word. They're kind of like cousin languages. Um, and so we see the son of man. It's, just, it's, it's a way of essentially referring to someone who is a human. The son of a man is also a man. Son of man, human one, is another way you could translate son of man. So a summary then for all of us of Daniel's vision. Daniel sees four beasts coming out of the water, right? It's a series of four beasts culminating in this super mega ten-horned beast. And this super mega, let's just call him the super beast. The super beast has a, a horn in the middle with a mouth and eyes of a human, and it's speaking boastfully in defiance against God. And then God shows up after the sequence of these four beasts show up as the king of history to bring justice, and he sentences this beast to destruction. And then we, there's this peculiar thing. We see this human one, and the human one is among the people who have been trampled and destroyed by the mega beast. And ultimately, the human one is exalted to share in God's reign and kingdom with God in victory over the beast. Strange stuff. Let's continue reading. Because there's an interpretation in Daniel 7 of the dream, the vision. So let's get there. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. And the visions in my mind kept alarming me, as they probably alarmed some of us this morning as well. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, we kind of alluded to this, are four kings who will arise from the earth, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, 
for all ages to come. So let's pause there really briefly. We alluded to it, but then we're kind of confirmed that this vision, this dream is actually speaking of in types and symbols referring to kingdoms and kings. And so we found out who the beasts were, in a sense. Kingdoms, kings. It's a type, it's an image, it's an idea to think about. Verse 18, who is the son of man according to this interpretation? It's God's holy people. Verse 18, let's read that again. But the saints of the highest one, another way is you could say the holy people of God, will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. So the holy people in this context are given the identity of the Son of Man or the human one that we see in Daniel's dream and vision. Now, I know everyone is like, hold on, it's Jesus, right? You have the right instinct, and we will get there. I promise you, we will get there this morning. Uh, Because this chapter is important to who Jesus sees himself as and what he did. But first, uh, let's read the last of Daniel 7 so we can close Daniel 7. Amazing. So verse 19, then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast. So Daniel kind of has this interpretation, but he still is curious, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet and the meaning of the 10 horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I love that line. If anyone is looking for a life verse, just larger in appearance than their associates. Another translation says the horn that was more imposing And the rest of the horns, I kept looking and that horn was waging war against the saints and overpowering them until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived and the saints took possession of the kingdom. Then he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will attend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Be a cool song title or band name. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale but I kept the matter to myself. If you have a vision like this, don't keep the matter to yourself. You should have a talk with someone. Particularly Adam at wellchurchvt.com. As we continue, 
There are actually two common, very common interpretations of Daniel chapter 7 and this vision and what does it mean and what is this interpretation. And there's a lot of really smart people who have wrote about these. And so I want to kind of give you a brief summary about what these people have written and actually the fulfillment interpretation of this dream and vision. Some people believe that this dream and vision was fulfilled by 160 BC. And so in this context, Babylon which Daniel and his friends were in exile of, Babylon would have represented the first beast we have here, right? So this would have been Babylon in this interpretation. And then a series of kingdoms that followed after Babylon's reign. And so uh, the, the, the second kingdom would have been Persia. So we have Persia here. I'm just looking at these. These are amazing. Uh, so we have Persia and then we would have had Greece. Uh, we, we know who Alexander the Great is. And then uh, we would have had uh, Syria as this fourth beast. And there's a particular king of Syria who appeared in 160 BC who kind of seems to fit a lot of the descriptions in this interpretation we, we read about. Uh, his name was Antiochus. He conquered Jerusalem again, as I mentioned, 160 BC. He made Judaism illegal in Jerusalem, he stopped the temple system, the feasts, the times that were set aside for feasts that had been appointed. He set up idols in the temple, and he actually used the temple courts to torture uh, Jews in Jerusalem, torture and kill and murder Jews in Jerusalem in the temple courts. He was a particularly beastly king, we might say. One group of people, Daniel 7, fulfilled 160 BC. There's another group of people that says Daniel 7 is actually describing future events that will take place some point in the future in Israel, in Jerusalem. Uh, And we're familiar with this as well. Pretty much you can kind of understand like this is the group, if you know the Left Behind series at all, that's essentially what these scholars would say about Daniel chapter 7. This is something that's going to happen in the future in Jerusalem in Israel. If you're a bit frightened, confused by the chapter, that's a good thing. It means you're still breathing. You're still alive with us this morning. We're a church that asks questions like this. What does it look like to follow Jesus? What would my life look like if I got to know Jesus and follow his teachings? We're about asking questions like that. Why on earth Are we in Daniel chapter 7? Here's what I know. The book of Daniel, particularly Daniel chapter 7, was really important chapter to Jesus. It was really important to his teaching, how he understood himself, and his ministry. Let me explain myself. What's interesting is we actually call Jesus, refer to Jesus as a name that comes from a Greek Greek word, which is the word Christ, right? Refer to Jesus as Christ. The Greek word Christos, uh, Messiah, the Savior, right? But what's interesting about this term that is probably used of Jesus more often than any other term by the church is that this term Christos, Christ, that Jesus actually, he accepted it when this term was ascribed to him, but he actually never refers to himself as Christos. 
He actually never refers to himself as Christos. He referred to himself most commonly with a very particular, peculiar phrase, strange phrase, probably something we've thought about ourselves as well. And he probably referred to himself as this more than any other phrase. And it was, it was this, I'm the son of man, the son of man, this peculiar phrase actually confused people when he used it during his day. And actually, I think there's a lot of confusion about this phrase as well in church today. Son of man, why did Jesus refer to himself as son of man? Why was this the title he referred to himself most often, the, the, the human one, the human one? Why did Jesus use this title to describe himself and his life? There's a particular incident in the Gospels where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, and he actually quotes Daniel chapter 7. And I think this, this uh, verse gives us insight into how Daniel would, or how Jesus would have understood Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. And this is in uh, Matthew 26. It would be nice to understood how Jesus read this chapter, right? With all the weird stuff, I was like, amen. Daniel's thoughts were alarming him. Ian, you're alarming me now, Daniel chapter 7. So let's get to Jesus. Because it also appears that Jesus really didn't fit into either of those interpretive camps as well concerning Daniel chapter 7. So let's turn to Matthew, the end of Matthew. It's the first gospel, chapter 26. And we're going to begin reading at verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders, but the, the Bible students, were gathered together, but Peter was following him at a distance and as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so they they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Let's pause there just for a moment and contextualize what we just read. Jesus is brought into a room with what we see as the most powerful man in Jerusalem at the time. It's the high priest, kind of like president, uh, archbishop, all mixed together into one person. And we have the Bible scholars. These were those who had scriptures memorized. They're the religious, political leaders of the day and the scribes. And the high priest, he's standing in this room, with the Bible scholars and the leaders in the temple. And Jesus is in their midst. And before them all, uh, since this is where Jesus is, they're conspiring to execute Jesus. And they're trying to know, like openly come up with false accusations against Jesus so that they can execute him. That's what's happening. Let's continue reading a couple more verses. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, 
You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, and he quotes Daniel 7, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Let's unpack this for a moment. This is actually an analogy I stole from Tim Mackey at the Bible Project. I just want to give credit where credit (laughs) is due. If you were to go to a Star Wars convention wearing a black mask, carrying around a green lightsaber, and going or you're going around to people and you're telling them, I'm your father. I am your father. You are, first off, that is strange. Second, you are putting yourself, you're portraying yourself as which character in the Star Wars universe? Darth Vader. You're, remember, you're, and remember, you're at a Star Wars conference. Do you need to explain that to anyone? No. No. I got the lightsaber color wrong. Yeah, it's okay, it's red. <laughs> Who's green? No. I love our church. Y'all are nerds, man. <laughs> and if you're the go around saying your father, you're treating the person you are speaking to as which character? Luke, do you need to tell them that? No. But I would argue that that is what's happening here in Matthew chapter 26. Let me explain. Jesus is in a room full of Bible nerds. Remember, they have the scriptures memorized, the leaders of Israel, and they're about to execute Jesus on false charges because they're upset he was leading a movement that Jesus called the kingdom of God movement. And what were the terrible things that Jesus was doing that they were going to execute him for? Healing the sick, preaching good news to the poor, right? These terrible things that Jesus was doing, casting out evil spirits, these things, uh, he's inviting people into celebrations of God's kingdom. And for these things, they're going to execute him. Jesus stands in the midst of these leaders, these Bible nerds, right? And he says, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Let me rephrase that. Essentially, Jesus is saying, the moment you condemn me in my condemnation to be executed on the cross is the moment the Son of Man is vindicated and enthroned before God. Do we, we catch that? Jesus is placing himself as what character in Daniel chapter 7? Son of man. Right. He's placing himself as the character of the son of man. If Jesus is painting himself as the true representative of God's holy people who are being faithful despite, of pers- despite persecution, despite threats of violence, if he's painting himself as that character... Who is he painting Caiaphas as? Super mega ten-horned beast. If you read on, they got upset with this because they understood. Caiaphas, the religious leader in Jerusalem at the time, super beast, Jesus called all of them and their whole system super mega ten-horned beast. That thing. (laughs) (laughs) To Jesus, 
Super beast doesn't refer to something that happened 100 plus years before him or something, something that only happened then. doesn't refer to something that will only happen thousands of years after him. The super beast is like, it's like a set of clothes that humans and human kingdoms put on. It's a type. It's a type. Daniel 7 can be a way of thinking not only about a single event, but it can be a way of thinking about all of human history. What happens when humans and human kingdoms exalt themselves in, in arrogance and pride, caring only about themselves, their own impulses? Humans become beast-like, beast-like. There's no other way of putting it. This, happen, this happens on an individual level, but it also happens at kind of like a cosmic corporate level as well. We're able to understand that, uh, recognize a mature human as someone who not only cares about themselves, but they care about others. And often that means the beastly impulses. We have to exert self-control, right? Self-control to be a mature human. We see this all throughout the Bible, that there's this battle that every kind of human has to face become, to become a mature, image-bearing human that God has called us to be. It's the battle. Are we going to become the mature, image-bearing human that God has called us to be? Or are we going to be like a beast? Like a beast. Jesus calls all the people in the room that he was standing in beasts. He looks at the holy people of Israel who were called out as a nation to be representatives of people who were, were truly human, reflecting the Imago Dei to the world. He calls them beasts. So Daniel's dream is about how God is going to judge, destroy the beast, and exalt the truly human one to share in God's rule over the world. Jesus believed this. He was actually bringing the story and vision of Daniel to its fulfillment. Jesus came to conquer the beast. Y'all with me? Okay, good. How does Jesus conquer the beast? We also put ourselves in Daniel's shoes for a moment. We can understand how this imagery could have been, it alarmed Daniel, but we can also understand how it could have given them a people who were being persecuted, were facing threats of violence, that this wouldn't last forever, right? So we can kind of understand that. How did Jesus conquer the beast? Daniel 7, the son of man is trampled on by the beast, then the beast is destroyed, and then the son of man is exalted, what we see about Jesus is he actually didn't only take on that title, Son of Man. He actually walks the path of the Son of Man that we see in Daniel chapter 7 as well. We see that in the trampling, in the crucifixion of Jesus, the greatest power of the beast, which what's the greatest power of the beast? It's teeth and the horns, instruments of death, right? We see the greatest power of the beast in Jesus's crucifixion, execution, we see the greatest power of the beast is exhausted. And that's the moment that the son of man claims victory. All the beast can do is kill, but he can't tear away Jesus from the love and covenant faithfulness of God. This is the same perspective that Daniel and his friends looked at the same beast in their own situations with. Jesus goes to death with confidence, confidence that his death is actually the way 
of overcoming the beast. But for Jesus, it's about the whole human story. It's not just a moment. So yes, Antiochus, 160 BC, is a super beast. And there were super beasts during Jesus's day called the Roman Empire. Caiaphas and the high priest, apparently. And there have been super beasts since then. And if we're honest, there might even be a little bit of super mega ten-horned beasts within each and every one of us. Right? Jesus says that the beast has to die in order for humanity, humans in history, to become who God has called it to be. And I'd argue that this is how Jesus viewed the cross. The beast does its worst. Jesus dies behalf. Jesus dies on behalf of the beasts so that the beasts can be transformed by the love of God to become truly human. So if we're honest, we could probably find ourselves in this narrative. I don't think we need to create a list of impulses in order beastly impulses, right, to get our imaginations going. We understand this. We understand uh, things like the drive to dominate and be more important than someone else, right? But I believe this. We're made, more, we're made for more than impulses, beastly impulses. And what's beautiful is Jesus comes as the Son of Man, the truly human one, and he becomes what we are so that we can become what he is truly human one, transformed by the love of God. It's all a bit strange. It's a strange chapter. Thank you so much for going there with me. I appreciate it. There are beastly, so like, it's a bit strange, but I think we can understand it, right? A couple questions. Two questions as we conclude. We can take these with us this week. Are there beastly impulses in our hearts that we can invite the Spirit of God to kill off the beast? by the love and faithfulness of Jesus. They're beastly impulses. One question. We invite the Spirit of God. Be about killing off the beast. Are there ways, second question, are there ways God is inviting us as people who are transformed by God's love and faithfulness to work towards the world, the world that God is fully redeeming, restoring, and reconciling? Are there ways that God is inviting us to participate with him in fighting the beast, right? Because remember, it's, I want you to think about fighting the beast in terms of systems, structures of evil uh, that we see in our world. Things where if we were to look at our world and say, Jesus, that's not reflective of Jesus's kingship. What could we do with our hands in our feet to make our world look more like Jesus is king, right? Because scripture insists that God is restoring, redeeming, and reconciling all things through Jesus. So when we see broken things, we're able to call that, name the beast, right? And we're able to work against it as we are empowered by the spirit. This is resistance, right? And so let's pray for our hearts. I hope you're encouraged. I hope Daniel 7 continues to be strange to you, but is hopefully a little less strange and encourages 
us to invite God into those beastly impulses in our own lives to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus through his love and faithfulness. And also we would work to a world where Jesus is king is something uh, that's looking more and more true because we know it to be true. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that scripture doesn't always meet us in comfort. It doesn't always meet us with an encouraging word, but sometimes it meets us with a challenging word. Um, And I just even thank you for Jeff's word earlier that I I know was speaking to uh, our hearts as well about bringing uh, ourselves to you in all of our brokenness, but in honesty and inviting you and your spirit to transform us. So I pray that you would give us the courage uh, to look at the super mega ten horn beast, the little bit of that we have within each of us and to bring it before Jesus uh, and the cross who, uh, through, through which the victory is won. And may you show us that the same path that Jesus took, the path of love that worked towards your healing, restorative justice, and reign in the world, that that same love is available to work through us as your people, God. And so I pray that you challenge us. I pray that you would show us specific ways in which we can use our hands and our feet to participate with you in restoring, reconciling, and renewing broken world, Jesus May your spirit be with us as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community reintroducing Jesus in Vermont through worship, service, creativity, and community.